0: But let me briefly begin by praying. Lord, this is your word. We are your people. Lord, would you feed us? Would we delight in you? Lord, it will not be the words of a mere man, but you that we need to feed us, to satisfy us ultimately with you yourself. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, the leader of the country treats women like they're nothing more than objects for his pleasure. He demands complete and unquestioning submission to his commands. He delights in excess, pomp, and doing everything big. Yet he ultimately is a fool, who though in power is often the pawn of others. He gets respect to his face, but sneering to his back. He's rash. He's impulsive. He's driven by emotions and keeping face. No, I'm not talking about any current leaders, though maybe some of that might apply. But how are Christians to live when we have such leaders around us? A country that had delighted in God but has now been taken over. Now the delight is not in God but rather what God hates. People in the country and even leaders in the government marginalize and hate God's people. The government allows, and even some, even many celebrate, death. No, I'm not talking about any current country, though some of that might apply. How are Christians, how are God's people, supposed to live in such a country and a government? Well, there's nothing new under the sun, and the names of countries, of leaders, viewpoints may change, but the underlying facts remain the same. If you hadn't noticed yet, we're taking a break from the book of Luke. The next verse in Luke is chapter 9, verse 51, where it says, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's a transition in the book of Luke. And from this point on in Luke, Jesus is going to be aiming towards the cross in Jerusalem. We had seen so far in Luke, angelic announcements, prophecies of Jesus and John the Baptist's birth. We've studied both of their ministries, and then we saw John the Baptist go to the side because He was not really the point. He was a forerunner who came to tell of Jesus. So he went into the shadows, and Jesus came into the limelight. And Jesus proclaimed that he's the king. And as the king, he showed that by casting out demons, by healing the sick, by forgiving sins, by bringing people back from the dead. Yet if the king has come, why is the world the way it is? And how do we respond when we have ungodly rulers in an ungodly nation in which we live? Again, there's nothing new under the sun, and we don't have to guess. God has given us a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. He's given us in His Word a plan that we may know how to interact, that we might know how we live, should live. In the book of Esther, we're given examples of how to live and act in a world governed, by self-serving wicked people who have evil intents in their hearts and are ultimately all about themselves. More than that, though, we see that God is constantly at work. He may not appear visibly on the scene, but in fact, he is still center stage. He not only directs and governs all, but he's the main actor in the play itself. And so to understand the f- message of Esther, we're going to begin this morning by first. Having a brief introduction. What is Esther all about? And then we'll look at a lavish party trying to show wealth and power. Third, we'll look at The Bachelor, if you're familiar with that show. Hopefully not too much. The Persian style. And then lastly, we'll wrap up with seeing a queen who's willing to give her life. So what is the book of Esther all about? Well, in our English Bibles, Esther is the last of the historical books. Now, when I say historical, I don't mean by any way that the rest of the Old Testament books are unhistorical, but you may have noted that your Bible, at least if it's not on your phone, is listed by genres or categories. The first 13 books from Genesis to Esther are historical. The next five books are wisdom, and there we have Psalms and Proverbs, and then the 17 after that are prophetic works. And so, add those all together, you get 39 Old Testament books, and Those kind of bleed together because in the wisdom and in the prophecies, it's true history. In the history, we have wisdom given to us, and we have prophecy. So they overlap and interlap some, but we see these distinctions even in the New Testament. They're not done chronologically, they're done in style of writing. That's why the four Gospels are first. And then Acts, and then letters, but even there, it's all of Paul's letters first, not because of importance, just the way they did it. And then there's Hebrews Question mark. Not going to take a stab on that. Then there's Peter. Then there's James. Then John has his letters. And Jude gets thrown in there. And Revelation. And I bring all this up because Esther being at the end of the historical books is telling us something. It's telling us that she's near the end of the Old Testament history that we're given of this time. You know, along this time as well, there were other things going on. There was Ezra and Nehemiah. So you have to realize this is well past the time of The creation, this is well after Abraham, this is well after the exodus, this is past the kings, David, Saul, Solomon, this is after the temple was built, this is when Israel and Judah both have been conquered and taken into exile. However, this is a little past that because this is in the middle of Ezra and Nehemiah. Some Jews have already been allowed to come back through the leadership of Ezra and restore the temple, start doing sacrifices again. And in the midst of this time, there are still God's people living in a foreign land. Well, how are they to act? How are they to live? Well, Esther gives us two main characters of Jewish birth and religion, Mordecai and Esther. Esther is actually called Hadassah is her name. She's the orphan cousin of Mordecai. (coughs) Excuse me. And... She's going to become the queen. Sorry if I just ruined it for you there. Nonetheless, she's going to become the queen, and yet there's other characters, because Mordecai won't bow the knee to the second most powerful man, Haman. And Haman gets angry, and he wants to, and gets the king's power and authority to destroy and annihilate all the Jews. Well, yet Esther will step in. She'll intercede, and they will be delivered and spared, and they will institute the Feast of Purim. So that's a brief overview of Esther. But it's interesting, if you look at the ancient books that we have, you can find commentaries early in the church, but there's no commentaries on the book of Esther for the first seven centuries, at least that we have recorded. As well, Martin Luther famously said, I am so great an enemy to Esther that I wish it had not come to us at all, for it has too many heathen unnaturalities. Well, What's so odd about Esther? Well, besides some questionable characters and actions that we'll talk about later, you may know or you may not know that the book of Esther actually never mentions God. Not once is God, Yahweh, our Father, or any other title of God used throughout the entire book. Not only is there never any mention of God, but they never mention the Sabbath. They never talk of reading scripture. They don't talk about the temple in Jerusalem or the sacrifices that would have been going on because Ezra's back. They don't talk about the forgiveness of sins. Now they do fast and pray, but they don't say to whom and what they prayed. This is no accident though. Raymond Dillard writes very accurately, what the writer of Esther has done is to give us a story in which the main character, the main actor is not so much as mentioned. The presence of God is implied and understood throughout the story. So these mounting coincidences are but the byproduct of his rule over history and his providential care for his people. It is an extraordinary piece of literary genius that this author wrote a book that is about the actions and rule of God from beginning to end. And yet that God is not named on a single page of the story. And it may feel that way in our lives as well. Where is God? I'm not seeing visible things. I'm not seeing lightning and thunderbolts. I'm not seeing miracles like they saw in Exodus. But just because we aren't seeing the same visible hand does not mean the actor has gone off the stage. And through the book of Esther, God's people see his invisible hand guiding and protecting them. We learn that God keeps his promises even when they look unkeepable and times look stark. We see what it looks like to be faithful in a foreign land. Well, enough of introduction. Let's dive in and see. And since we have a little bit bigger sections, I'm going to read them as we get to them. Let's begin by reading first Esther 1, 1 through 9. It says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors and the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods, and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged King Ahasuerus. So the story begins by telling of this king, King Ahasuerus, who throws us over the top party. But he's no minor king, some minor vassal state. He's the king over the land from Ethiopia, which is around Sudan, all the way to India, a vast empire, the biggest empire that the world at that time had ever known. And yet though he rules over a vast empire, we're going to see he can't and won't derail God's plans. You know, the powerful leaders and ideas, they come and go, but God and his plans march on. Oh, King Ahasuerus shows this massive party in the third year of his reign. Notice who he gave it for. It's for the armies, for the governors and nobles, and he's showing off his wealth and splendor. Now, historically, the timing of this feast matches right before Ahasuerus went off to attack Greece. So it appears what he's doing is he's trying to show them, hey, look, we want to go conquer this foe, or at least I do. Let me show you. I have the resources. I can do this. I have the might. Come look at everything I have. All right, all of y'all, y'all should support me in this battle. Let's go. But as the party ends, it doesn't actually begin because there's an after party. Seven more days. He throws another one. And this isn't just for all those. He throws it for the whole town, the citadel there in Susa. And no expenses spared. Hebrew narratives are often very succinct, and yet it gives all these details. It talks about the type of floors, the type of cups, the type of food, and everyone can drink and eat to his heart's content. I don't know what you think is fine food, but this is way better than Golden Crown. This is way better than Grand Buffet. This is better than a Brazilian steakhouse, or whatever all-you-can-eat place you can think of. It's not just one meal. It's a week, as much as you can eat, of the best food. Along with this, Queen Vashti gets to throw a party as well. And yet this lavish display of wealth and feasting really points to a massive heart problem. And the problem isn't the wealth or that they had a massive feast. Those can be fine in and of themselves. It Rather, it reveals that Ahasuerus is not content with all that he has. You've know, already noted, he has the greatest kingdom that had been known to man at that point. But why does he throw the party? because he needs just a little bit more he needs to go conquer greece now it's been noted that when azureus had to flee from the grecian army the grecian army came to his tents and they go golden couches silver couches why would someone who has all this come to conquer us in our poverty it didn't make any sense if he has all that why does he want a little more And this isn't just a problem for 2,500 years ago. In 1902, there was an audit of John D. Rockefeller, the famous investor, and he was estimated at that time, 1902, to be worth $200 million. One of the wealthiest men to ever live, even more wealthy by comparison to Bill Gates. He would put him to shame in how much wealth he had. And yet when he was asked, well, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? He replied, just a little bit more. You know, what do you need beyond what God has given you? Now, for some of you, you may not be craving a little more money, but maybe just one more Lego set. Just one more vacation. Just one more glance. Just one more fancy meal. Just one more. Just one more. And yet, when all along, we have the greatest thing we ever could want. We have God himself. As C.S. Lewis said, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God alone. are is showing us the man who is completely uncontent, who is not satisfied. He has it all, but I need just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. But a problem arises, and we'll see this next in verses 10 to the end of chapter 1. Beginning in verse 10 of chapter 1 of Esther. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abigatha, Zethar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princess her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. And then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure to all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shathar, Adamatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Memican, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and set first in the kingdom, according to the law, what's to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she's not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mimikin said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, Well, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him. She didn't come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree was made by the king, is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Mimikin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its script, to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. So everything seems to be going great. They've been enjoying this feast. The party's going on. And then there's this problem. Ahasuerus is drunk. And he sends his eunuchs to bring Vasti to show off her beauty. Now the story is a little vague, but we can piece together a drunken party of men asking a woman to come and share her refusing. There's clearly indecency going on, something that would be demeaning her and viewing her just an object. And yet here, at the crowning point of the party where he's trying to show everyone, I got power, I got authority, he's told no by his wife. You know, he can't even control his own family. And he goes into rage. He doesn't know what to do. And yet he's really made to look like a fool. Because what does he need to do to take care of this domestic dispute? Well, I better call in the seven princes. I need their counsel to help me. And this is really one of the many times where Ahasuerus is shown or portrayed to be rash, impulsive. A man who's really foolish and a pawn for others. You know, these men are the wise and powerful men of Media and Persia. And while he's trying to impress them, they're going to use him only for their benefit. You know, their spokesman, Mimican, he replies in a way that's very chauvinistic. It's very selfish, and it's really helping him and put down the king in three ways. First, if the queen is deposed, the normal way the king would get a new bride was from the seven royal families. So what happens if she's gone? Maybe my daughter will become queen. I'll have a little more power in the capital. Not only that, but second, he appears to be worried about himself. Well, what's my wife going to do when she hears that she did? Is she going to turn such things down as having to come out and parade herself before everyone? Boy, this would be horrible. All he cares about is keeping a little fake power in his own home. And third... Though some people knew about this, it wasn't known by that many that Ahasuerus had been told no. But due to his order, now by by kingly edict, every single person from the least to the greatest is going to know that Ahasuerus was told no. Something that could have maybe been kept secret is now going to be proclaimed to everyone, making Ahasuerus look like a fool. Well, he listens and he sends the messengers throughout the kingdom Sebastian is no longer the king, and another queen will be chosen, one who is better, and to command this chauvinistic command that every man is the master of his house. Well, what should we make of this so far? Well, what's going on? Why are we being told all this? I think the author is using satire, and he's pointing out that God's people can live in a world that seems as though all the power is in the hands of the corrupt because he wants them to realize that, really, they aren't all powerful. In this case, the man is supposedly the greatest man in the world, he can't even control his own wife. You know, the wealth and supposed display of power are revealed to be nothing more than the emperor's clothes. It appears that he's dressed to the hilt with power, resources, glory, but there's actually nothing there at all. And as we laugh at the emperor's clothes, We actually are able to gain power over their domineering over us. Of the people who we think are powerful, their power over us. Yes, we still may have to serve them, but we don't live in dreadful fear of them. We realize that there's only one with cattle on a thousand hills. There's only one who sits on the throne where every edict is fully obeyed. And that true king has power over any king on this earth. As Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He is the only king who is completely in control. Thus, God's people should know that though they're not in Jerusalem, though they're not yet fully in God's kingdom, and though they may have people over them who are completely ungodly, those people are not in control. The king who is in control rules. He rules over every rash, every pompous, every foolish ruler who has ever existed. And so he's showing them, look, you can trust that the true king, he is still on his throne. And you can be faithful to him. The world is calling us, assimilate, just become like us, or despair. And yet Nestor, we see that neither one of those is a viable option. We don't assimilate, neither do we despair. Rather, like the king on the throne who sits in the heavens and laughs, we can laugh at the silliness of those who rule over us, who think they have all power, but one one day will be returned to dust, just like every other mere mortal. Well, the story continues, though, because Ahasuerus eventually calms down. But now he's without a queen, though not without women. And so we see him try to fix... His problem with the bachelor Persian style. This is Esther 2. Let's read Esther 2, 1-18. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let you beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem and sues of the capital." under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there is a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, and carried away with Jeconah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven choice, chosen young women from the king's palace. and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken in to King Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the tenth month which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all the officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Well... Ahasuerus has no queen, so he asks his young men, and not too surprisingly, they come up with a plan. Very debauched and destructive plan. Well, king, why don't you spend one night with 365 different women, and whoever pleases you most, she can become queen. And Ahasuerus goes, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good idea. So, the plan starts, and it appears the women have no choice in this, but they're taken in, and they're taken into the harem. So here, this is quite pleasurable for Ahasuerus, but quite destructive for these women. You know, they're ripped from their families and communities. You know, no care is given. Well, what are your goals? What are your aspirations for your life? No, they're taken so that the king can have the best of the best. Not only that, but as we read later in verse 14, even if he doesn't want them back, they never get to go home. They're prisoners in the harem for the rest of their life. Now, if this were a movie the scenes would start fading back and forth between what happens. Because it fades from the throne with Ahasuerus to fading back to a young girl whose parents die. And what's going to happen? And then you see that her cousin, Mordecai, comes and takes her in. And her name's Hadassah, but it's also Esther. And she is now living with him. And then the scene fades forward to a little bit later. And she's older. And there's comments about how beautiful she is. And you could see it yourself. And then... A little time later, you hear the edict being read that the most beautiful women are going to be taken. And you see Mordecai counseling her. And for some reason, he gives her counsel. If you're taken, don't tell them that you're a Jew. But it doesn't explain why. And then the... goes forward and she's taken. And she's taken and she's very favorable. And she quickly moves up. And she's given the best of the food. She's given the best of the room. She's given seven servants. And... Now we also see Mordecai coming to see her every day. And yet then the scene jumps again, and we're seeing the description in verse 12 of the kind of assembly line of Ahasuerus trying to determine which one's best. Yet they don't just go in. They spend a whole year preparing for this one night. I don't know how long you plan for your wedding, but most weddings don't take a year to plan. Normally they're a little less. And that's for someone who you're going to be with all your life ahasuerus wastes no expense for himself you know, as one man put it ahasuerus, sorry ahasuerus had a great appreciation for beautiful things unfortunately things are exactly what he thought women were you know, he doesn't care about them it's all about himself so when it's their turn they get to go and they can take anything they want but from then on they're prisoners there's no way out you know, we often live and see how sick and twisted our world can be. Well, the story now shifts forward. Verse 15, it's Esther's turn. She goes in and she takes nothing except what Haggai, the eunuch, tells her to take. Now, the Bible never shies away from being honest about the perversions, the sin and the ugliness in this world. It's very honest, but it's also very balanced because it's not graphic. It doesn't go into sordid details that we don't need to know. It gives us the idea, and yet it moves forward. And so in this case, all we're told is that Esther pleases the king, and she's made queen instead of Vashti. In honor of this, King Ahasuerus does another feast. Feasts are a big theme in this book. He gives a holiday, because when the king is happy, everyone is happy. Now there are points in Esther, like this one here, where we kind of have to stop and scratch our head and go... What are we to make of that? Is Esther here being presented as a model for us to follow? Should we dare to be an Esther? Well, you know, let's just think if President Trump had Melanie Trump died, and hey, for the next year, he'll have 365 girls, should we encourage our daughters to go? If they win, should we give the counsel of Mordecai? Hey, don't tell him you're a Christian. Hey, Enjoy all the food and drink he gives you. Just just go along. Should we do that? You know, Joseph, at the expense of his freedom, was unwilling to sleep with a woman. Daniel, at the expense of his potential life, was unwilling to eat the food of the king. We're told not to be ashamed of the gospel, but Esther keeps it a secret. Well, part of the problem here is that we sometimes read the Bible differently than it was intended. We read the Bible sometimes as though every person in there is supposed to be a character, either for us to emulate or not. And we want to be able to say, look, we should act like that. We should dare to be a Daniel, or we should be like David. And yet that's not always what the Bible is about. Along with that, we have to realize that the Bible doesn't, often almost always never ends a story by then going and what they did was right or what they did was wrong it tells a story and then moves on to give a slightly different example as we look through the book of exodus we saw in exodus one that the hebrew midwives did not obey the order of pharaoh and they didn't put the hebrew boys to death but then when asked they said well the hebrew wives are too strong which was not actually true to the facts so was that a lie? Was that something they shouldn't have done? Well, some Christians will say yes. Other Christians will go, well, that's not what was meant by don't bear false witness. But the story in Exodus never says that was right or that was wrong. And I don't bring that up to leave it hanging when we looked at Exodus. I gave a clear answer. But the point is to say that the Bible doesn't often end with, well, that was good. You should do that. Well, that was wrong. Don't do that. Because the point is That the Bible is not ultimately about the characters, the secondary characters. Ultimately, the Bible is focusing on God. That God works in and through characters, even when they don't act like they should. Thus, Esther and Mordecai may, and you could argue, do things that we shouldn't. We may learn from them, but they're not the reason they're in the Bible. Mark Dever aptly notes, Any of the questions that we might have about an individual's actions only points towards the real deliverer, to the gracious, sovereign, providing God. Karen Jobes rightly states, While the attempts made by interpreters throughout history to exonerate Esther and Mordecai are understandable, they dilute the message and its power. The divinely inspired author chose not to reveal Esther's actions to being taken into the harem or Mordecai's motives for commanding Esther to conceal her identity it is natural to pass judgment on these two whether positive or negative but in doing so we may miss an important point regardless of their character their motives or their fidelity to god's law the decisions esther and mordecai make move events in some inscrutable way to fulfill the covenant promises god made to his people long ago thus as we read the bible we should note Are people doing right and wrong however Beyond that, we need to see that God's plans are not being derailed when his people do what is right and wrong. Brothers may sell a brother into slavery, but God still works his plan. Disciples may flee and turn in their master, their Lord, and yet God's plan marches on. God works with broken pastors, broken churches, broken Christians. And our hope is not that fellow Christians are always going to be perfect and that's what's going to cause hope in our life, or that we're going to be perfect. Our hope is in a God who works through broken individuals, whose plan is not messed up by mere humans. And so we see a glimpse uh, here of God. He's in the story, though he's never mentioned. And here we see also a cruel self-serving king, He only views people things that are there to make his life better. And yet in Esther, we are given a contrast. We do see some very admirable things of Esther. And we're going to conclude by briefly noting that in Esther chapter 4. If you turn there, we're going to look at verses 12 through 16. Because as we noted, there's going to be a man named Haman who grows to be second in power. And he'll become angry because Mordecai won't bow the name. And not only will he hate hate Mordecai, He will hate all Jews and want to exterminate them, annihilate them. So when Esther finds out, though, she considers herself impotent. What could I do? I can't go before the king unless he lowers his scepter. If I go in, I may be put to death. And yet notice what it then says in Esther 4, 12 through 16. It says, And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai, what is he saying? He's saying, look, even if you don't step in, Esther, God is going to do something. He knows that God's promises will not go unfulfilled. God promised that he was going to bless the world through Abraham's descendants. So it is impossible For all of them to be destroyed. There's going to be a redeemer through the line of David. So Esther you can be faithful in this moment. Or you cannot. But God will deliver his people. And so what does Esther do? She responds by seeking prayer and fasting. And she says if I perish I perish. Esther's response here is really an application of Jesus words. We saw a couple weeks ago in Luke. In Luke 9, 23 and 25 through 25, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? Consider Esther. She was an orphan in an exiled country who became the queen. She had gained the whole world. But would she, in trying to gain, the, keep the whole world, forfeit herself? You know, Ahasuerus had already cast his vote. He was living all for himself. He gained the whole world, practically, but it wasn't enough. More riches, more power, more women, a little more, a little more. And if a little more means hurting those around me, on matter life's all about me ahasuerus thought esther in contrast willingly risk her life laying it down for her people she's a reflection of the true king jesus who didn't come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many but he didn't just give up an earthly throne but he gave up his eternal glory with his father and came and gave his life for his people. You know, the true king doesn't look at us as commodities or things that he can use and abuse. You know, he came and died for his bride. You know, Ahasuerus, his bride Vashti, she's great. As long as she's beautiful, as long as she's compliant, as long as she's serving me, yeah, I'll take care of her. Jesus, though, had an uncompliant, a rebellious, an unattractive bride. And yet he came and he died for her. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't use us for himself. He gave himself for us. He did not come to be served, but to serve. He didn't try and demean us, prayed our beauty around. He died to make us beautiful. And to do this, he gave up more than Esther was even willing to consider. He lost his eternal throne so that he might restore us. He used his power to serve, not to use like a Ahasuerus. He's the king, and one day there will be another world. Thus, as we live as God's people in a foreign world, we have to make sure that we're not sucked into its values. Assimilation or despair is what we're trying to be pulled towards. Just be like the world or despair, and yet there's another option we're being shown. Now, we may not be a Ahasuerus. We may not rule everything. But we need to not be sucked into thinking, I just need a little bit more in this world, a little bit more. No, the true king, he exists. That's all you need. And so we can let our grip go of our kingdoms here because we don't want to assimilate with everyone else and say, I got to have it all now. I only live once. It's not true. You know, we are strangers and aliens in this world. And so may we flee from self serving lives and lavishly, sacrificially serve those around us. May we follow our Savior in this way. He rules and reigns. And so may we delight in this King who rules and reigns not just for Himself, but uses it to serve and welcome and call us His beautiful bride. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at the story, we see many things that make us scratch our head. But yet, ultimately, we see you. We see you who has never abandoned your promises, who's never abandoned your people, who had a plan and has fulfilled it, sending your son to take our place. And we thank you for him and what he did. Lord, may we delight in him, the true king, and not be assimilated or despairing in this world. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.